Hello and welcome to the Frimfield Podcast, the podcast where three friends who had a dream to be professional footballers dashed away as children when they all discovered food have their say on the Premier League. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, we expected that to happen at one point or, or the other, but it is what it is. Uh, obviously, we are joined by the Kevin present coach, Kodra. How are you doing, sir? I'm feeling wonderful, bro. It's been a good day so far and we've got an excellent guest with us as well today. So I, I say you introduce the introductions, my friend. Yeah, well, um, he is... Uh, Former coach for one of Man United's biggest rivals, Manchester City. Didn't need to mention Man United, bro. <laughs> I've always mentioned Man United. And um, former head, uh, former assistant manager to Joey Barton at Fleetwood is Mr. Steve. Yeah, how are you doing, sir? I'm very well. Good afternoon, lads, and thanks for having me on. I, I watch and listen to the podcast, and as do my friends, and we think it's terrific. So it's great to be with you today. Ah, awesome. Thanks for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on so far. Um, Gosh, should, should we start the podcast by going to the coaching? I guess we can start. Yeah, let's get straight into it. Um, so obviously, you go at uh, you retired. Did you retire? You retired at nineteen. No, um, straight away I can jump in there. I didn't. I didn't retire. Um, I got released. Um, there's a misconception about that, and a lot of um, football people are more than happy to tell that party line. I, I'm not willing to do that. Um, I was a young footballer at Burnley, an apprentice. Uh, then I was a professional at Wigan Athletic and then craving and tr striving and working hard, trying to get the second professional contract. Each contract is, is very, very difficult. But I will say um, it was difficult in those days. There was no uh, extra time for development. There was no under-21s, under-23s. There was no feeder clubs. And uh, back in the 80s, uh, 70s, 80s, 90s, you, you, there was one substitute at first team level. There was two substitutes. It grew to eventually three. Um, I probably wasn't good enough at 19. I wasn't ready um, um, to be a first team player. I needed that extra time as a late developer that players seem to get now. I never got. Um, and knowing what I know now, I was disappointed at the time to be released, not getting that additional contract. But having become a coach for the next 30 years, I look back, I've not got a hang up whatsoever that I didn't extend my football career at that point because I wouldn't have signed me. I would not have signed me at that point knowing what I know now. So I, under, I understand the process. But what it did do, it gave me an opportunity to become a coach at 19-20, to work for Manchester City, which is the club that I support and the club that I love. Uh, my dad was a lower league football man uh, that ended up writing a book, and a bestseller, an autobiography, almost um, probably the first of its kind, someone poking fun at himself uh, throughout his career for the stories that go on in the lower leagues. Um, so I was from a football background, but then I drifted from, from being a professional to playing semi-professional, which is where I got all my injuries, which required surgery. I, I think I had 13 operations all over the body, knees, ankle, hips, hernias, uh, broken jaw, uh, another one on the knee. So I, I had six operations on my knee. So that wasn't a question of me retiring at 19 because I was never injured as an apprentice or a young professional. The reason I finished playing at 19 is because I couldn't, uh, get the opportunity to keep going so it was later on that I got injured so I just want to bury that one before it gets started because I've got to be true to myself and to to the listeners I mean it's it's unusual nowadays for anybody to go into coaching at 19 it's such a yeah. young age I mean I call coach 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 because he went to uh you went to university didn't you, you went to yeah and I managed to get a coaching job within that 18 but that was in the community it wasn't straight away with the academy or anything else so he worked with he worked with Arsenal when he went to university, and that 
that's unusual. Yeah, Especially um, going to a big cl a club with a with a stature like Manchester City as well, nineteen. Yeah, and I remember you know the um, the A license, which is what it's called now. It used to be called the full badge. It used to be really really intense. Two weeks at Lillyshaw, a year study, come back for two weeks, and then you were guillotined, yes or no. Uh, it was so hard to achieve, and there was twenty four um, on candidates when I did it in uh, nineteen ninety nine, and there was only three that passed. Uh, three young men, all with, with similar stories. Uh, one was Brendan Rodgers, one was Paul Clement, and one was myself. Who We could all play football. Uh, we all loved it. We all understood it. We had we had football respect to a certain degree, but I think largely people looked at us and thought, probably should have done better with our early careers. But what he did do, uh, you know, the, the, the tutors, it was Dick Bates, the rest, who's obviously the rest of his soul now. Uh, he was like king coach in terms of coach education. And he obviously picked us up the crowd as, as, as potential coaches for the future and, and gave us the, the grading uh, and the grounding to, uh, you know, to be respected in the coaching world. So, so young, the two lads have gone on to have fantastic managerial careers. Uh, Paul all over the world as a coach, basically an assistant. And obviously Brendan Rodgers for, for what he's done at various places and doing it, you know, now live as we, as we speak. So um, I went a different path. Through, through coach development at Manchester City, but uh, it was something that on not grasping or being given the opportunity to, to extend my professional career as a player, it did give me a head start to become hopefully a recognised and respectable coach. So was it out of necessity that you, you decided yeah. to coach? Because you, you, you knew you always wanted to be in and around football. At that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I felt like I needed that extra year at 19 that the players genuinely get now. Mm. Um, you, you know, teams in League One have got to have six and seven substitutes and one's got to come through your academy. You've got under 23 leagues. Uh, you've got a holding house now where, you know, time and patience is of the essence. And, and, and you know, you, but you, do get, you do get that space. You do get that manoeuvre to continue your career. Like when I was, I'm 48, you know, so when I was 19, you had to be good enough for somebody's first team in League One, League Two. Where I was competing, and like I say, I, I didn't feel, along with millions of others, that that I was. So I was comfortable with that. And there was a junction uh, for me, and it was lots of opportunities to go on trial um, and back myself, which I was willing to do initially. But towards my end of my contract at Wigan, Paul Power, who was my hero at Manchester City, mm -hmm. uh, ended up uh, being a title winner with Everton. But he was the Manchester City captain. He was working for the PFA at the time. He came in doing some freelance coaching at Wigan. He saw something in me that he liked and he recommended me to Manchester City for a, a junior coaching position which combined community work, school of excellence work uh, and to go to Main Road every day and, and mix. I just thought at that point of my life it was an opportunity that I should take along with playing at a good level of, uh, of semi-professional football and ended up playing in the conference for Runcorn. We were Liverpool based and Southport also mm. like Liverpool based 40 minutes from Manchester and uh, ended up combining the two. So whilst I was a little bit aggrieved that I wasn't playing in the Football League, I was still playing in the fifth tier of English football and coaching at, obviously, a huge football club, which is the club that I love. Well, um, we've known Manchester City to be a team that has always developed youth at a good level as well. So we can go back to the days of Sean Wright Phillips, for example. His debut was in 99, I believe, actually. Yeah. It was for quite a while. Um, but you also worked with a lot of great coaches there um 
Now, before you took, you went your levels and I became, I believe you became the under, under 18 head coach slash manager um, from 2009 onwards. You worked with Jim Castell. Outstanding. Yeah. I was he? Because I've always been, being a main United fan, but also being interested in football in general, like when you heard about the Manchester area, he was a name that usually popped up quite a lot in developing young players. But how, how important was he? in maybe your education of becoming amazing. amazing well he's an amazing man first and foremost that's not enough to survive in football but it gives you a head start um he'd had a little start as a similar career to myself he got injured i think as a manchester united junior he ended up scouting and doing a bit of everything at oldham athletic and his good fortune possibly was when joe royal became the manchester city manager and wanted to revolutionize the, the manchester city academy it was behind in competition, it was behind uh, all the local rivals, City being behind uh, Everton, Liverpool, Manchester United, possibly even Blackburn Rovers in, in, in terms of facilities. Uh, and then further afield, certainly Arsenal under you know Liam Brady and others, mm. Tottenham, Chelsea, they weren't deemed as a threat. The last time they'd won the Youth Cup was in 1986. Pretty much all of that team got in City's first team and struggled to stay in the division, but all managed to get appearances and careers. And basically, the academy needed a kick up the backside or a, or a gloss of paint, any which way you want to, any you know what you want to choose to describe what it needed. But it needed progress. And Jim Cassell came in and basically transformed uh, the fortunes of the youth department. Many believe that he actually saved the club with what we developed and progressed into our first team. And, and unfortunately, at the time, sold on, which was Sean Wright Phillips, who you mentioned. But um, that that debut for Sean Wright Phillips for me was the catalyst of of an unbelievable spell of success. Um, we had the best, in my opinion, I think largely everyone's opinion, the best under 18 coach uh, in Alex Gibson, a real expert. We had the best recruiter. I don't think I'm saying this with bias in Barry Poynton, who would work 24 hours a day helping us to get the best players. Paul Power was a club emblem, a great coach and a great man and, and everybody's favourite Manchester City captain. There was coaches like Frankie Bunn, who who ended up moving to get on with his career. And there was myself sat underneath it. And of course, there was other staff. And we all had uh, attributes to, to, to make them, the, the programme work. But Jim Cassell could do it all. He sat on top of it. Um, and he was signing players. He was building relationships with parents. Uh, he obviously had a fantastic relationship with the first team manager. He was a great people person with great knowledge. But the key to it was Sean Wright Phillips, because once Jim Cassell knocked on Joe Royal's door and said, enough of him playing for us, no longer should he be playing for us, he should be playing for you. When Joe Royal looked at it and, and balanced it all out and then picked him for the first team and he progressed and did well, then that just made it easier for the conveyor belt to start rolling. And Joe Royal would then say to Jim Cassell, thanks for that one, who's the next one, who's the next one? So if Jim Cassell would say to him very fairly, no, this one needs another six months, this one, Stephen Island might need 18 months, but he will come through, but it might take a year and a half. Uh, or you know, Joey Barton, for instance, this one's ready for you now, you know, so on and so forth, although that was a bit more in the Kevin Keegan era. It allowed that trust to build because we got Sean Wright Phillips through, Nader Manua, Lee Croft was around it at the time, Kelvin Etu was around it at the time. You know, they all had different different strengths, but because we got Sean Wright Phillips through and he was so good, the trust was born and it lived forever and it was one of the most successful times in youth football that I think you'll see at any level. That's a good that's a sorry, that's a good level. And um 
I was going to ask, actually, just before we go into the young players that you worked with at the time, City underwent two tra- um, takeovers mm. during your time there. First with Faxine Sinawatra, and then, yeah. of course, currently Sheikh Mansur. Did you see in... I mean, with Sheikh Mansur, you can see, obviously, it was like phone has come through, so there's still... Uh, I won't say the uh, dependent, but they are looking at the youth and make sure that youth have the, the avenues to get through to the first team. But did you feel that same way when the first takeover came through? What was the feeling around the club, especially at the youth level? Well, it allowed us to grow with staff. Um, the head coach, Alex Gibson, I mean, we won the Youth Cup in 2008, which hopefully you'll come to. I, I, I speak about it with such pride. But what I did find at the time, as a young man getting better at the job, uh, I think I've got a good pair of eyes and that, but... I was trusted to do all sorts of things, but I did notice the Shinawatra era just started to set Jim Cassell away from his desk. It started to take him away from the training ground. He was working tirelessly as it was, but his workload just increased with meetings and you know, and I think different different times of meetings from all over the world. It could be a telephone meeting at four in the morning and I just think he was pulled all over the place, which possibly took some of his time away from the shop floor, which possibly didn't help, but it allowed the rest of us to step up and work with the players and make sure that the the program was still running but obviously over a period of time you know so Sven Goran Eriksson, Mark Hughes, um, Roberto Mancini um, was to the point where I left to become a manager myself at Rochdale obviously the Kevin Keegan exciting football era which got them you know back to the Premier League and of course Joe Royal uh, before it all with the 99 at Wembley with the penalty shootout against Gillingham and then the you know the drama at Ewood Park the following season you know with almost like you know double promotions to get to, to back where they were and, and they were on the way but of course the real um, you know injection of, of of success has been more recently with the the Sheikh's money and um, we've got you know Manuel Pellegrini um, who took over and you know that got it moving and then we've seen you know Pep Guardiola so. They're just going forward and forward, despite not maintaining Premier Leagues each season. Obviously, the involvement of the club has been absolutely enormous, and for a large part of it, it was there. It was it was eye-opening, um, almost almost excellent with everything. Not everything, mm. um, not not some of it, not to my cup of tea, but where they are now from where they were. I hope they never forget at home because I, I do believe some people think that City have only been going since 2012. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There was a lot of history and there was a lot of hard work going on for hundreds of years before it. So that's that's the that's the thing though, is is because they've had such enormous success very quickly after the takeover, is everybody seems to forget that they went you, you guys went down a few few times. What was the biggest obstacles as a youth coach, as a youth manager, uh when the side wasn't as stable as it is today? Uh, it was great. It was it was it was absolutely great because as a young coach, you were just you were just expected to do well with the individuals, do well with the with the, the, the players as a team, do well with the parents, and just run an academy system and try and be the best at that. But what we could do, it made recruitment uh, easier. Um, first of all, we were based in the middle of Moss Side. Um, I love I love the area. Um, you know, it, it's in the news for all sorts of reasons. Um, but obviously one of the toughest places in, in the UK. So we had to convince players, not only from Manchester, we had to convince players uh, all around the Britain, all around Europe, all around the world to come to Manchester, come to England. Um, no taxi service. You're too young to drive a car. What we expect you to do is get a bus from your digs, 
wherever they may be, into the Manchester Town Centre, which is galling enough for any schoolboy. Then you've got to get a bus to, uh, to Moss Side. Then you've got to walk through the streets of Moss Side to get to the training complex at Platt Lane. Then, when you get there, you'll be treated like the best footballer in the world. Um, you'll be treated with unbelievable respect. We will try and father you, but we can never do it as well as your own dad. We won't, we won't claim to do that, but we will you know, teach you about life as well as the game. But most importantly, we think we can develop you to become one of the first team players at Manchester City Football Club because the first team club is failing and it's going to, you know, the first team is failing and it's going to rely heavily on the youth and we believe we've got the, the best coaches. Uh, and once you've gone through the, the trauma of, of getting to the training ground uh, against, you know, Blackburn Rovers had had a brand new one, Middlesbrough had one, Leeds United have had one, all of a sudden we're competing with these types um, who would pick them up from school, presumably, and they would just be everything to be on site. We had to convince them basically to come and learn their football in Moss Side, and that's all down to Jim Cassell and Barry Poynton to allow Alex Gibson and myself and Paul and others the opportunity to turn these into first team players. And the amount of players that we did, uh, the turnover is absolutely immense, not only of what they achieved at the club, but also the money made for the club. So we're very proud. Excellent. Um, you want to go? Uh, yeah, I was just going to ask how hard, because you, you mentioned that there was obviously the, the youth players go through such a, uh, a system where they almost have the expectation that they will eventually see Premier League football. They will see some form of football. How hard is it to then go to a kid that just isn't quite going to make it to tell yeah. them that they're not, not going to Yeah, it's not. tough. It's tough. But we had the route map. You know, we had the uh, the model. We had Sean Wright, Phillips, Dixon or two, who, Joey Barton. Before that, Michael Brown, for instance, you know, a different, a different generation. Mm. Lee Crooks, Jeff Whitley, Jim Whitley. We had a proud tradition of, of a, like I said, I've already mentioned a conveyor belt. We could always say to players and parents, look, come here, because this is what happens. Mm. Then obviously, you know, you know, for us to get Daniel Sturridge at 14 years of age from Coventry was a, was a big, was a big coup. And all of a sudden you started to get a reputation of not only do you get the best coaching, not only do you improve and, and, and win football matches, which we believe was important, you get recognised and you get opportunity in your first team. Now, I don't know if I ever shouted this around too much, but as a Manchester City supporter and, and, and you know an employee of the club, your goal was to try and get them to be good enough to be a Manchester City first team player, but always in the back of my mind was to try and round these young young men into becoming... Um, better you know better adults teenagers to adults um some of it's out of your control um i just wanted them to i know how difficult it is to make a football league appearance and whilst i was putting the hours in putting the legwork in putting the coaching sessions on i kind of like knew in my mind michael johnson was was, was an incredible young schoolboy that played for me and i knew he would be a first team player for city he was something different I was grading players all the time and whilst I knew deep down they may not get a scholarship, they may not get a first year professional, they may not get a second year professional, I was putting the hours in for them to become a professional footballer somewhere else and I think that's uh, what, we, what we did superbly and all our players are all over the four divisions in England, in and around non-league, in Scotland, in Europe and I think that's because we were hell-bent on making them better people and better footballers but not always necessarily good enough for Manchester City. And we did provide exit routes, I think, with our reputation that people could get opportunities elsewhere. If we picked up the phone uh, and suggested that they should take them, we knew the levels 
And I think players and parents really, really respected that. So whilst it was always sad to let them go, we also did our best to get them fixed up. And I think our reputation as staff helped players get second and third opportunities. Um, so let's rewind to the bit where you said that you wanted to talk about the team that won the Youth Cup. Yeah. Um, so obviously, bounds of talent in that team. Yeah. Um, yeah, please let us just wax lyrical about how special that team was. Cause, special. Yeah, considering the amount of obviously top quality um, academy clubs, teams around the country as well, for that team to stand out above all yeah. these others. It's incredible. So please let us know. Very special. Well, I've got a friend at Chelsea who was um, trumped in terms of how many times he's done it. Joe Edwards, who's with the first team now. I know how much it means to me. Um, and City have only managed to win it in 1986, 2008, and I've just won it in 2020. So it is difficult to win the Youth Cup, but it is a competition that every young player wants to wants to have on their CV. You know, there are there are millions of players who've got FA Cup finals. World Cups, semi-finals, uh, obviously Premier League championships. But the one thing they wanted to get them started, which you only get two goals at, really, is the FA Youth Cup. Every player wants it. Um, all the soft fakes that pretend that Saturday morning football isn't important uh, in terms of winning, it's just about development. Um, they can't hide from the fact that the FA Youth Cup is there to win. Mm. It's, play it's played on stadiums probably for the first time in your career, as opposed to training grounds. Um, and like any cup competition, lads, not necessarily the best team that wins it because it's six games of football spread over a, a, a season, seven games of football. So we've seen Denmark win European competitions, and that, you know, so you can win a competition, not ne necessarily be the best team. But we earmarked this team with eight Manchester-born lads who were in the system from the age of under nine. We knew at nine that this crew would have big chances of winning the FA Youth Cup. And then when we added to it at 14, 15, 16, um, it kind of like dovetailed into a project where it was a target of ours. And it was one that we, you know, we, we made no secret of the fact that with this team, we we would like, we expect to win the Youth Cup. And that's showing football courtesy to everybody else. But that was a set of young players that we targeted could do it. The year before, we didn't. The year after, we didn't. But that lot, we thought we could. And that was led by Ben Mee, who is the captain of Burnley now in the Premier League. Yeah. Uh, Kieran Trippier uh, was a first year, obviously, Atletico Madrid. Dedrick Boyata is now captain of Hertha Berlin. So that is um, three of the back four that are all captains, with Kieran being captain of England this year. A young lad in goal was Greg Hartley, who was a local boy who didn't progress to being a professional. And at left back was a lad called Ryan McGibbon, who was a Northern Ireland international, who's marked Cristiano Ronaldo out of football matches, who played in City's first team. So, so we we were set. We were set at the back. In midfield, we had an unsung hero in a local boy called Scott Kay, one substitute appearance away at Juventus for a Manchester City season ticket holder was incredible, but he didn't get on and he drifted into non-league, but one of the best lads that's ever been in the system. Andrew Tutt, next to him, is playing in the lower leagues. I signed him for Rochdale. He's been at Morecambe and he's currently playing centre midfield for Bolton. Okay. Vladimir Weiss was on one wing, uh, an unbelievable talent, uh, yeah. possibly the most skillful boy I've ever seen. Um, I think he's possibly in Qatar now. And a lad called Donald McDermott, uh, an, an Irish boy with amazing skill as well on the left wing and then uh, up front we had uh, well it wasn't an embarrassment of riches but we were we were blessed 
with um, we had a D David Ball who is now playing uh, in Australia for Wellington Phoenix, who are based in New Zealand, but have scored goals all over English football uh, in Leagues One and Two. A lad called Robert Mack, who's a Slovak international. Oh yeah, wow. uh, who was terrific, but he was just on the periphery because he was a young boy, but a great pace and really dangerous. Um, support was Ian Daly and a, a lad called James Poole, who were kind of like on the periphery of the of that. But obviously, we also had Daniel Sturridge, who ended up being the X factor for the tournament, and um, it was a real test for us lads because he didn't train with us through the week. He was good enough to be with the first team. And uh, he didn't play for us on a Saturday morning. And I remember us being before the youth first Youth Cup game, 11 straight wins to be top of the under-18 league without Daniel Sturridge. But Daniel Sturridge, his family and the club basically said he would like to play in the Youth Cup. So that was a dilemma for Jim Cassell and Alex Gibson, the heads of the operation, to choose Daniel Sturridge or not. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we chose him in the first round and we went to Reading and we won 3-1. And from going a goal down, he got a hat-trick. Um, so you kind of like were justified in, in playing the amazing talent that he was, even though he wasn't in your stable Monday to Friday or Saturday morning. So that was a challenge that uh, the guys had to, 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 to decide upon. But he scored in every round, including, uh, including the final. Just before you possibly move on, once we got to the final, we drew 1-1 with Chelsea away at Stam Stamford Bridge, 16,000 on. It was amazing. And uh, Daniel Sturridge scored. I think 2,000 City fans travelled. It was a big occasion for us. And then Daniel played in the first team for Sven Goran Eriksson against Sunderland and was brought down for a penalty. Got injured in the challenge. City scored, I think, in the game against Sunderland from the penalty that he won. But it ruled him out of the second leg of the final, which meant Robert Mack played. Mm. And uh, so, actually, whilst Daniel Sturridge played in the final by scoring in the first leg at Chelsea. He didn't actually play in the second leg, which we won at the Etihad 3-1. And uh, most people think he, he scored in every round. But if you count the final, he did. But he didn't, he didn't play in both legs. Oh, wow. Um, so with Daniel Sturridge, actually, let's stick with Daniel Sturridge. Mm. Um, just how far watching him did you think he would go? Because when we look at his career, especially in England anyway, he's played for big teams only. I mean, he's played for City. Then he went to Chelsea. Chelsea and Liverpool, you know, um, and he's had an incredible career. I think he left as a Champions League winner. Was he there further for the Premier League? I can't remember if he stayed there for the Premier League winning season. I don't think he did. But just how good, when you when you look at a young player, yeah. you take everything into consideration, of course, ability, but of course, hard yeah. work, um, attitude to every training session, as well as in games. Yeah. Knowing him and knowing his family as well, how far did you believe you and other coaches around him, how far did you believe he could go? Yeah, um, I mean, it's obviously not, not literally, but he's one that I never really had too many fingerprints on because he was that good enough to be fast-tracked. He was up training with Anelka, he was up training with Kevin Keegan, Sven Goran Eriksson. So he was not one that we really felt we pushed on with development because these players, these, these super talents, I hear coaches say, oh, he's one of mine, I brought him through. It's a load of nonsense. They bring themselves through. You just obviously give them support, tactical advice, and you put on the training sessions that help them flourish. But largely, they bring themselves through. Um, so he was never really, despite him coming at 14, he was whipped up to Carrington, treated as a first-team player at 15, 16 years of age. So um, there's a lot of missed years with Daniel that uh, you know I, I didn't see because he was too good, too good and too ambitious, possibly. Uh, and that was the programme that was set for him. I do remember when he came back preparing for the Youth Cup games, 
Um, no disrespect to any of the lads who I love, but you put on the, the shooting sessions, the finishing sessions, and you know, you know, in over the bar, wide, uh, straight at the keeper, a mixed bag of, of shots are going at the goal. And then when he joined in, they were just being stroked in the corners and the keeper just couldn't get there and they were hitting the side netting and they were just the correct finishes at the right time. And Michael Johnson joined a team that I was uh, coaching at the time. He was 12. He was trialling all over the country, uh, never settled. He ended up settling with us, but at this point he wasn't settled. I had a fantastic team that was great everywhere, winning games. He joined as a six-week trialist. Um, probably to see more if he liked us than, than we liked him. And I, I remember coming home and saying to my father, that's something a little bit different there. He's something a little bit different. I think that proved to be. And then Daniel Sturridge, just the way he was striking the ball and his finishes, I also came home and thought, that's also just something a little bit different. So there's that. And there was a fifth round of the Youth Cup away at Bristol City where we were out. We were losing 2-1, we were getting beat. He was playing through the middle. And um, he went and took himself on the right-hand side and told the right-winger to go to centre-forward, basically swap positions. It looks like a coaching masterclass. The centre-forward then looked at us and said, Sturge has just moved us. And uh, before we knew it, Sturge had picked up the ball in that right-wing position. He'd spotted a weakness, took a touch onto his left foot and curled it into the top corner for 2-2. And then two minutes later, took a ball under control, bouncing ball, volleyed it into the top corner and we're winning 3-2. So... He obviously saw the tactical side of the game where he could gain an advantage on an opponent, where he could win the game. You know, even at that point, ahead of some elite coaches, we allowed him to do it. He just felt warm in that moment to go and play in that position to recover the game and then get back on top of the game. So uh, we ended up winning 4-2 and it looked like quite comfortable. But it was just a five-minute spell of genius from Daniel Sturridge where he just asked the teammate to swap positions. And again, at that point, I thought... God, we've done so much here tonight. We've done made a sub, we've picked this team, we've done this set play. But those two goals are solely down to him and it just made me think, yeah, proper special talent. And there's something that he's got that, that, that is clear um, that others haven't got and possibly there's something missing which has meant that he's not sustained it or done it considering, you know, that could obviously be injuries, but he's definitely got some, some unbelievable unique talent which is very, very rare. Mm. Um, oh, I'll go, I'll go ahead now. Um, so sticking with that team, you mentioned Ben Mee. Yeah, actually, who is for me an interesting name because he obviously playing with Burnley and being a captain, the captain of Burnley at the moment. He's a player that came sort of out of nowhere on, on terms of the radar of people yeah. watching the league of football. But sometimes, some players sometimes have to go maybe a bit lower in the leagues to come back up, and he came up with Burnley, I believe. Yeah. Um, how important did you think that was for his development? Because I know when a player gets released by a football club, yeah. sometimes they find it a bit hard to make that step up. So someone like uh, Sam Cox, for example, who was at Tottenham, when he got released, he had to find his way into the lower league of football. Some players are afraid of that because they're afraid of not making it yeah. to the top league. But what would you say was so important about him making that steps for himself? Yeah, I remember at the time there was, um, you know, we'll, we'll, I'll go fully on Ben, but there was Adam Clayton who chose it and went yeah. to Leeds. Kieran Trippier went to, to Barnsley before Burnley to get his career going. And, you know, centre-half such a, a, a key position and with, with the influx of transfers and money, you know, coming at Manchester City, Ben saw his development probably stall, certainly not go backwards. 
Um, he didn't have impatient ambition. I think he put his career in the hands of the people at the club to decide what happens to him. Kieran and Adam Clayton were different. They wouldn't have development football. They needed to go out and play league football. They demanded it. I think Ben just let football take care of itself. And then what you can do, you can find the right home, the right manager. I think he certainly found the right manager in Sean Dyche, who's got the same values, played the same position, has come through the lower leagues, uh, loves competing, loves heading. Um, and it's a little bit of a frustration for me. Um, the amount of players that have played left centre-half for England with a right foot, Harry Maguire, Ben's uh, defensive partner, James Tarkovsky, who's my neighbour, who, who I think so much of, uh, John Stones, uh, well, there's Tyrone Mings now, who's, who is left-footed. But pound for pound, you know, for what you're going to get in terms of football respect, you know, you'd be hard-pushed to find a better left centre-half in the Premier League than, than Ben Mee. There's probably half a dozen better right centre-halves uh, at the job, uh, at the top four teams. But in terms of left centre-half, there can't, there can't really be a, be a better one for what he brings a football club now. It, like I say, it appears a hand-in-glove relationship with the manager, the style of play, their identity of Burnley. They have to do a lot of defending. They rely on set plays. We saw him score with one you know, this, this midweek. And uh, his attitude is the type of person that has probably got almost... Per I think he's got perfect football behaviour. Others that I've mentioned are great lads with good attitudes, but they're not perfect Ben's probably got football perfect behaviour and I remember saying to his family he is the type that will be a, uh, a brilliant best friend, a brilliant best man, a brilliant father, uh, a brilliant godparent, uh, a brilliant captain. He's just one of those, you know, organisers, low fuss, high performance, um, superbly well behaving, everything he deserves, sorry, everything he gains he deserves for what he puts into the game. Uh, there were, like, like Coach was saying, a whole bunch of net players that you've worked with. Ben Mee, uh, Daniel Sturridge, uh, Stephen Arden, Kieran Trippier, yeah. Shemichael. Who would you say, I mean, you said that you that the players, they're the ones that actually bring themselves uh, yeah, up absolutely. to the systems. But who would you say is your proud, if, if, if you were to say, which one would be your proudest achievement? Yeah, I think it's got to be Kieran because he's captain England this year. Um, as you know, I, I spoke to him this year. He, he, he watches your podcast because he spoke to me this morning saying, I believe you're on a podcast this afternoon. Uh, I'll be listening. I'll be watching. So so word gets around, lads. So it's got that one to go straight into the Athletic <laughs> Madrid dressing room. So he, he knew he knew this was happening this afternoon. So, um, I mean, it's hard to differentiate them all, but he was one that was there from nine. Um, and the thing is with myself, my progression at Manchester City the first team that I, I ran with was the under-12s. That was the position they gave me, which Kieran was the best player in amongst many great players. But as they went up, I went with them. So 13s, 14s, 16s, 18s, 21s. So in terms of that group of players, they mean the most to me simply because I've spent that much time with them. And obviously, they've all gone on to do different things. Some of them are parents now. Some are in the lower league. Some of them have fell out of the game. But, you know, we have to... We have to show some football bias, Kieran's been captain of England this season. So, you know, that's obviously something that, that makes me makes me very proud. But also the people that, you know, put the work into him, which are his family, used to get into training on time, obviously, uh, used to hand him over to us and say, basically, do what you want with him. He's hmm. uh, yours, which is a throwback. And, it, you know, I think that's gone a little bit out of the game. Um, hmm. And obviously the city staff, who all helped us nurture him 
but we didn't te- we didn't teach him how to ping the ball 30 yards or put a free kick in the top corner. We just used to fetch the balls for him to keep practicing because it's very much a natural talent. You just try and teach him the fine art of 1v1 defending, defending your back post, crossing on the run. But uh, most of the stuff he's done is natural and uh, he should take the credit for himself. We've just nudged it along on the way. But I'd say him. But also, I'm proud of, I'm proud of, of them all. Uh, whether they've made a league appearance or not, whether they've captained England or not, we think largely they've all gone on to you know to good good careers and good lives and whether that be in the game or not we're, we're very proud with anybody we work with because we had that relationship with the players that's how it used to be excellent um you said so talk about the recent recent crop of city talent because you said you're, you're obviously a fan of Manchester City so Phil Foden Jaden Sancho uh, you said about Foden that he's the most naturally talented player that you've seen yeah um on Foden how early did you notice that he would become such a great, great yeah. talent that he is. Yeah, there's, there, there, there isn't a player that is, has been as noticeable and as obvious as that I've seen in, in my life. Um, there was a lot of noise um, locally. I live in Salford. We all knew that Ryan Giggs was coming through. Uh, I was a little bit older. I was playing against him because he was playing up in, in games myself. He's a friend. He's a neighbour. You know, there was noise around Ryan Giggs. But there was polite, polite noise around Phil Foden probably at the age of about six Mm. Um, he played for his young team not far from City's training ground but towards Stockport which was called Reddish Vulcans which was a fantastically run little club I think we had an affiliation with them and it was a case of getting young players from all over the region to come and train in like a preschool we called it a junior academy uh, really like an infant school Uh, we had two gentlemen really Barry Poynton head of recruitment and he had a lot of scouts Terry John ran this uh, little infant football class, if you like. And what we would do, they would train uh, four till five, five till six, little six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, basically having football fun, learning the Manchester City way. And it might have been 100 boys of an evening that would come over the two hours. So it might be 50 for the first hour, 50 for the second hour. And what we used to do as youth staff, we used to uh, train the youth team in the morning, train them in the afternoon, they would have a, a, a weights physical session, they'd have a bit of classroom work, they'd have jobs to do. And then round about, you know, half three, we would go for a run round the streets of Moss Side, get a quick shower, and then we would obviously show interest and walk across the car park into the big dome and we'd watch all these five and six year old boys learning how to play, having the shoelaces tied, you know, lucky if one could pass to the other, you know, safely and correctly. And obviously then you saw Phil Foden, who was in this system, who was just something like you've never seen before in terms of how to receive it. I mean, we had a syllabus very much on midfield players receiving on the half turn, taking it off the bat, lads, passing through lines, passing through gaps, dribbling, dropping shoulders. We had a syllabus for that. Now, he was already doing this before he's even reached the syllabus. Mm-hmm. So um, I have to say... I always say this quite passionately. Uh, some of the players we've mentioned, I think Kieran Trippier is the best I've ever seen with a right foot, with the ball leaving his right foot over distance, 10, 15, 20, 30, 35, 40 yards. It just goes where it's supposed to go. Daniel Sturridge was the best at uh, finding the net and certainly the corners of it. Micah Richards was the best at uh, jumping and heading. Um, I think he scored 14 goals on a Saturday morning, not in one game, um, <laughs> over the course of the season just by being picked out by Michael Johnson corners in flight. So he was jumping head. And then in terms of how to receive a ball, Phil Foden was like something that you try and coach the rest of the 
the, the players in the academy from 12 to 18. You try and teach that every day. He was like doing this at five, six, receiving the ball, flowing the game on the move, drifting and gliding around and, and then um, being the perfect team player by involving everybody with possession or just dribbling around them all, including the goalkeeper and scoring into a net. He was just, you know, you could pick him out, out of 100. He was that good. No problem. Um, so obviously Phil Foden, I think on on here we were when he was when he wasn't exactly getting into the first team. We were here championing because of obviously Jaden Sancho. He left and became a start. Done. We thought that he had the talent to go to other places like maybe in Everton or such. Um, is it sad knowing that now that there's no longer a direct link for many players from? under 18s, under 21s, to the first team as there was before? Um, well, there is, a, there is a link, there is a route map. Like I say, what the clubs provide them these days, you think is excellent facilities, mm. uh, excellent physical support with, with gymnasiums and, and, and uh, fitness coaches, sports science, diet, um, under 21 football. Uh, City, for instance, they, they, they choose the loan for you. Uh, it could be in the lower reaches of this this country mm. it could be a feeder club it could be in a different part of the world um and if you're good enough you'll play um what i would say is it's changed it's evolved but it, it's it's like it always has been you've got to be good enough to get an opportunity and you've got to be even better to take it and then you've got to be even better again to to enhance it and uh you know there's no doubt that phil was going to do that but you know some everybody gets opportunity there's only people who were wrong in the end that say they never get an opportunity. It's just that the best people take them. Um, and I do believe there's opportunity, but you've, you've got to earn the right. Jaden Sancho, I've got so much respect for. I don't know. I've never coached him. I'd left. There was a crossover. But he's decided to go and get some football exposure, a different life experience, a different language, uh, go and play in somebody's first team. He wasn't hanging around for the city development route. Phil Foden was more than willing to do that and has just played his 100th game for the club. Um, he's now a hot cake in terms of what everybody thinks of him. There isn't anybody in the world that doesn't know he's a great player. And he's still very much in the potential phase. Um, he's doing it in six positions for Manchester City. Six. Mm. He plays either he's plays either side of the striker. He's played as the striker. He's played either side of the centre midfield player. He's played as the centre midfield player. And he's come off the bench. He's actually done it in seven positions. So, you know, what an asset. And people think, oh, when's he going to get a go? He's just had 100 games. Hmm. He scores on all the stadiums. At first, he was coming on in injury time and City were 3-0 up and he was playing keep ball with Kevin De Bruyne and David Silva. But bit by bit, his minutes grew. His 90-minute experience grew. He's playing on Wembley. He's scoring at these big grounds. He's, he's, no, he's nobody's secret anymore. So he is a, um, a lesson and a, a, an emblem for anybody to follow that it can be done. But we know the levels that Manchester City are at now that it's so difficult. I will say this. There's two two players larger. They're getting pushed, um, you feel. And they're both local. So uh, it's Phil Foden, 100 games. And Tommy Doyle, who is um, a throwback in terms of attitude, the way he plays the game. His two grandfathers were City legends in Glimpardo, who unfortunately passed away in the recent months. Mike Doyle, one of possibly City's greatest ever captain. Um, but they were signed by Jim Cassell and Barry Poynton um, all those years ago. So actually, those two gents are still producing the goods for Manchester City uh, in terms of what you know runs out on the field. 
The business model has changed somewhat. And City have signed um, dozens of players now that they've made fortunes of profit on, who are now scattered all over Europe. They've even had second and third moves since. And the holding house from Manchester City is a really, real profitable one, where we were developing players solely with help for our first team to play. You sometimes feel now they're being developed to sell as the business model. But the truth is, uh, since the, the Sheikh's money, if you like, any player that's gone in the team hasn't stayed in it other than Phil Foden, and he was actually signed by Jim Cassell. Um, I, want, I want to ask the question, have a little bit of a discussion here. So, um, obviously, England right now are a bit excited with the talent that's coming through. So, you can talk about Foden, we can talk about Bukayo Saka, we can talk about Mason Greenwood, um, Callum Hudson-Odoi is another one that's being mentioned. Now, obviously, right now, in the last couple of weeks, um, he's getting his, team, his chance in the first team now at Arsenal, which is Emil Smith-Rowe. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of young players, and I think it's just because of the way maybe like an Mbappe has burst into the scene, the amount of goals and assists he's got in the last couple of uh, years as a young player. When you are developing young youngsters, was there such a insistence on making sure that their statistics were high? So was it like your striker? So you obviously, a striker's job is to score goals, but was it important that they scored a certain amount of goals or did you look at their overall output as a player in terms of how they developed as a player before you know what's what's more important i mean what's the important what's the importance was it the, the, well, i think, I think the data is obviously it, it's, it's here and now uh, and it backs up and supports it challenges um and it sometimes can be your enemy yeah because it can obviously you know crucify um i would always back what i see with my eye i think that there's some data now that that you know doesn't doesn't add up and doesn't mean anything to me. The one that's really getting on my nerves at the moment is this XG. The mm. only losers wheel out, just losers wheel it out. Um, I've heard managers lose 3-1, uh, but they're not overly concerned because the XG says they should have really won 5-3. And if we play like that, we'll win next week. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. So you're as good as you are on the day and what that final score reads. And if you're a young player, your data, uh, how far you run, how fast you can run, um, and obviously, it should never go out of fashion. You know, Alan Shearer, Andy Cole types. You know, what do you what do you actually do at the end of it? Though, how many goals do you score, etc. So, data's with us whether we like it or not. Um, I say I'm I'm not a massive fan of some of it. And you have to back this up. But there's just something I could possibly throw back to you that I've never been able to understand. Everybody's building up now, largely in a four three three system. Right. You've, met, you've mentioned all those players there, but not one of them is a centre-forward. Not one of them is a centre-forward. But if you get that right, so, you know, just for argument's sake, if you get a number four defensive midfield player, if you get that right, you might, you might be a 20 million player. If you get your midfield players right and left, 20 million, 20 million. Yeah. You get left wing and right wing, 30 million, 30 million. But if you yeah. get your centre-forward right, you get, it's a 60, 70 million pound player. So why are we only developing one at a time? I don't understand it. You know, so it's like all these players now, I, I worry, are we, are we developing enough centre-forwards uh, in the game? Because we seem to develop talented, quick, skillful, high-energy, up-and-down right and left wingers. You just mentioned five or six of them. Um, maybe some of them drop deeper into midfield roles as attacking, what do they call them now, number eights, if we're doing it numerically. But my concern, lads, would be, are we developing enough centre-forwards? And I really don't think we are. If we look down the academy chain now around Premier League football, you're talking Tammy Abraham, 
Yeah. Well, Greenwood has gone to the wing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Rashford has gone to the wing. Yep. So who is our next actual centre forward? Because if you get that right at your club, you're getting 80 million. What I don't about, think we're developing enough. What about uh, Calvert-Lewin? What's your opinion on him? Calvert-Lewin, again, is at the right club. Um, you know, Duncan Ferguson as, you, as the club's hero on your staff. Uh, they, they make no shame of, of, of crossing the ball and, and putting it into areas and scoring from across. Uh, he's benefited from that. They're benefiting from him playing well. They're having the best season they've had for some, for some time. I'm hoping that crossing comes into back into the game and more people decide to do it. But obviously, when you sometimes play just one up front and that might not be somebody that is, is, is physical, then that's possibly you know coming out of the game. They've even got a centre forward on the wing for them in, in Richarlison. Yeah. You know, so you know, so many of these centre forwards are drifting out onto that left wing position. A lot of them are actually right footed, and it just gives them that one v one opportunity. Whereas, as a centre forward, this is why I feel for Tammy Abraham at times. He's facing the wrong way. He's marked by two, mm. and he's expected to play well for Chelsea every game. Uh, I'd like to cut him a little bit of slack and say that he might just need, you know, some support. Not, not suggesting that all these top managers should change the systems to having two up front. But my concern going forward is that we're not producing enough centre forwards for sure. I mean, is it to throw it back onto the coaching? Is it down to who, what type of forward is now leading the game? I mean, you look at Aguero, he's easily one of the best strikers in Premier League history. Harry Kane is, uh, is uh, another mention. But if you look at the size difference, mm -hmm. that's what you, I would say that's what a traditional. English yeah. forward looks like, but that, that type of forward is easily gone at the game now. Well, they all, they, you know, you can't blame them, but they all copy Pep Guardiola and think that the game should be played. Split the centre arse from the goal, you know, from the goalkeeper, build it from the back. I mean, how many of these teams do we see in the lower leagues giving goals away because they're copying how to do it, but they can't actually do it? Mm. City have got a style of play where they swing the ball from right to left, left to right, and the opposition's half, they keep it. Uh, they don't just play straight lines and right angles. They play 360 degrees. David Silva was the king of it. And in that 360 degree motion, you're on the ball for five seconds. But because you're turning a full circle, you can see every single teammate in that moment. So you've got 10 choices of a pass. And eventually they pick the right one. A defender commits out of the box and they slip it into an open space. And they either score from a, a ball um, across the six-yard box for a tapping for Sterling or a pullback for Gundogan. And it's the perfect team goal. Everybody else actually is um, copying it because either vanity or ambition. And um, I do think we're suffering because, A, the coaches aren't good enough to deliver it and, B, the players aren't, aren't good enough to follow. Do you think, do you think then there's um, just a lot of coaches and teams doing a bad imitation? Because if you think back to his Barcelona side, I mean, yeah. they could pass out from the back, but they had two colossal defenders in Puyol and Piquet yeah. to defend. You go to Bayern... He had a very strong um, Max Hummels and uh, Jerome Boateng. Yeah. And at City, he had a company uh, next to Laporte he, who he brought in. Yeah. The company was gone for um, 12 months. Obviously, he left for Anderlecht to be a player manager. Um, Otamendi didn't really fit the bill, but then he brought in Ruben Diaz, who's been yeah. so far absolutely colossal. So why do you think teams and coaches get it wrong? Do you think they just don't really understand what he's trying to do or do you think they get it but they can't attract the caliber of player well it's a downgrade and not not to mention the outstanding football goalkeepers that they've got behind the center halves these days mm. you know obviously edison at city uh stegan and you know and others 
Um, but they don't put enough coaching time into it. The pitches aren't pristine. The players aren't good enough. Um, I don't I don't want to take ambition away from anybody. You've, but sometimes you've got to play what the game gives you. And there's too many trying to develop a brand and an identity and a style of play. And before you know it, uh, they've lost a load of games and they've been sacked. And I bet they wish they hadn't. Um, you get the feeling that David Moyes isn't, isn't doing that. Um, he's sticking to his principles of how he thinks games should be won. Not necessarily how it should be played. Um, you would probably, you know, if you had a choice of watching, um, you know, City or Chelsea or certainly Liverpool um, or his own team, it probably would be the other three. But he, he's got he's got his team playing how, you know, he thinks wins football matches in the Premier League, and you know he is a breath of fresh air at the moment in uh, in, in 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 my eyes of keeping it real and basically giving what the game gives him and, and going up against it as opposed to uh, shaking hands with vanity and trying to you know show everybody a certain style of play that doesn't suit. I've, I've got a lot of respect for what he's doing at the moment. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's talk about your decision to go into management for yourself. Obviously, yeah. from the outside looking in, it would say because there was such an influx of money and now, now City are... Yeah. Uh, what they are in terms, especially when it comes to youth development in terms of money and stuff and stature. Was there any fear or did you did you just really want to get no. to when you left? No, um there was a little bit of a little bit of fear, um, because Manchester City was all that I've known for, for 21 years. Uh, and when I look back and I strip it back now, I was very fortunate, I was spoiled in terms of competition. And what I was doing at the end, I was overseeing the, the, the youth programme and I was taking five football matches a week. I had a complete football fix. I had an addiction. Um, I was in charge of five games a week. So I was I was taking the under-18s. Right. Um, I joined up with the under-21s, as it was. They called it the Elite Development Squad. Um, so under-18s, top of the league, pretty much unbeaten. Reserves, top of the league, pretty much unbeaten. I would then work on a Sunday morning with an under-12 team um, by choice. Uh, the, the gap between eight and eleven aside, you're teaching them, you know, the rules of the game. You start to do set plays. You start into obviously do formations. Um, I thought it was a vital crossover that I should be working at that level. So I would always work with the under 12s. I'd arrange a game with the under 15s on a Thursday evening um, for them to play their games. Same with the under 16s. So I was having five football matches a week, playing well. Players were great and improving and winning. So all I really knew was, was was like winning football matches with good players. So when I look back, I was a little bit spoiled with that. But I had this passion to obviously do a little bit more. And the opportunity to manage Rochdale came up, which is a local team for me, being based in Manchester as the manager at um, Keith Hill at the time and progressed to, to get another opportunity. So anyway, I was invited to speak to them. Uh, I went and met them, I think, on a Sunday afternoon, and it was very informal. And I thought, well, it would just go for the experience. And uh, then I was asked to go for a little bit more formal and present, you know, so you get smart, you, you know, you get ready. But all in all, I was between the two at Manchester City, 18s and 20, 21s. And I thought, this actually can only really help me in my existence at Manchester City and enhance my growing reputation there, that possibly there's an opportunity to become a manager, but I won't leave. Anyway, I was so impressed with how Rochdale treated me and their plans and the respect. And, and I interviewed, I think, one more time. And then they offered me the position. But I was flat that um, I was you know, so grateful. I was humble. 
Um, but but thanks very much. I will be staying at Manchester City. Um, but you'll have to let Manchester City know, you know, about the about the approach which they did. Mm. And I actually thought at the time this might fast track my journey at Manchester City. I, I make I make no 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 quarrel about that. That was that was almost the plan. So Rochdale said, uh, "Fine, okay, we respect that, but we would like you to consider, reconsider." I said, "No, I'm staying at Manchester City." So 24 hours later, they got back in touch again and said, well, we're hoping you've reconsidered, um, have you? So I put it on Manchester City's toes and I, I arranged a meeting and um, I had a, a walk around the training ground with Brian Marwood, who was Arsenal winger, title winner at Anfield um, in, from that season and head of football operations at this point. And I don't think he knew of the approach or, or what the academy guys knew. So um, I asked could I go and see them and uh, I think it was a day off and um, we walked around the periphery, uh, perimeter sorry, of, the, of the training ground. Uh, we must have walked for a couple of hours, chatting about the game, chatting about life, and you know. And he, said, he basically said, "Well, what, what do you want to what do you want to do?" I said, "I want to progress here at this football club. I, I want to, you know, make the full jump from the academy to the under twenty one setup, and I eventually want to be around the first team." And he said, "Well, I would like that for you too, but um, you know, it's Roberto Mancini's staff." And that's not something that I could promise you, but it's something that I would really like and hope for myself, but the timescale of which uh, I just don't know. So his, his, his chat was great, but it didn't really help me in terms of the fact of I've got a quick decision to make, which is basically in about five hours. Uh, but he did the best he could, so I respect him for that, and he basically couldn't make me any promises. Anyway, uh, there was a gentleman at the time who was very much involved with the takeover with the, with the, uh, the shakes called Gary Cook. And he was he was brass. He was he was he was he made noise. He Carlos Tevez, Rubinho, and he was dragging the club. And he was making City a real force. And he was letting people know about it. And um, he rang me, and uh, I thought, oh, this could be good. This you know, this is something. Um, anyway, he actually gave me the best bit of advice, which actually turned my life into from a decision making point of view. And he was really decisive and he said, heard about the Rochdale approach, think it's a fantastic opportunity. I think you're born to manage. I think this is the right time for you. I said, I don't want to leave Manchester City. And he said, well, don't worry. Give it a go. Go and be the best you can be. I think that'll be enough. And if it's not, you can come back here. You've got a job for life. Mm. Now, when you hear those words, you know, and, and, and full trust and, you know, to this day, I, I stand by that. He meant he meant that. That was like, oh, that's that's a little bit different. That's someone that's running the club that basically says, go and give it a go. So I rang my mentor at the time, uh, still is, Paul Power, who I'd worked with for so long. And he gave me another bit of advice. And he said, listen, better to live like a lion for a day than a mouse for a lifetime. <laughs> And two good men that I respected are just like one ear, one ear, just gone bang. And, I, and my mind was set. And then all my attention then went to becoming a manager with Rochdale and repaying the respect that they, they'd given me. So it's a difficult challenge becoming a manager, uh, but one that I was ready for, one that I was willing to put. I just needed that last nudge that I got. Now, the sting in the story is that within three months, Gary Cook left the club. Um, he left the club for, for whatever reason. So whilst his words were genuine and to me 
changed the direction of my life. What he actually said about me, if it doesn't work out, you can come back, didn't matter at all because he's no longer at the club. It wasn't written down on a piece of paper. There's somebody now sat at his desk in his office. Mm. I can't, if it doesn't go right at Rochdale or wherever, knock on the door and say, I'm, I've got a job for life. I can come back. So it actually just fell. But I just had to just shelve that and just get on with the new project and a new 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 challenge in my life, which I'm so glad I took because it was difficult and it's been proven to be difficult for managers, caretaker managers. The previous manager came back and has been sat since. You know, it's a difficult role, but it's one that I'm glad that I took because it eventually just gave me a little bit of status to be then chosen to become a first team coach at Huddersfield and actually get promoted out of League One at the right end of it and not the wrong end of it. So it just gives you that that role of being at the time one of only 92 people that do that job in the country so I'm glad I did it but I just possibly needed the nudge at that time from two great men uh, so you were at Rochdale for say six seven months yeah yeah obviously I wanted longer and I, I planned a, a development plan for the club for myself um you know, you, you 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 win games, but you know, remember beating Neil Warnock in QPR in the court, beating Berry in a, a local derby away, beat Preston in a really big game away, and you just they're very much in that hit miss or maybe um, phase of your life. But you just thought you'd get a little bit more time. But that's one thing that I learned probably from that job onwards: the time that you want is not the time that the owners and supporters want. Um, and whilst we were never, there was always four or five worse teams. The club had, had uh, committed to giving youth a chance in me, me give youth a chance and trying to build the youth set up there, which has actually been very good in recent years, um, and get a team going. I made some mistakes with, with players. I make no 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 secret of that. I made some mistakes in in the, the budget that you're given. I'm looking at players as I'm signing. I'm thinking, God, this is a risk, mm. uh, which is which is not ideal. And and some some came off, some didn't. And eventually they decided to, to reroute it and go with some experience um, to keep them up. What they did do, they give a caretaker, a youth team coach, the opportunity first. But I think he lost half a dozen games in that period. And then a friend of mine, John Coleman, was was um, was was asked to take the job from Accrington, even though he's gone back there since, as a bit of a more experienced figure to keep them up. And he didn't. Now, I will always believe that we wouldn't have got relegated had I stayed but um, others might think differently. And at the time, they chose to go down a different path. Within seven weeks, I was at Huddersfield, 40 minutes from Manchester geographically, working for an unbelievable chairman and chief exec with a team on the up, with Jordan Rhodes scoring about 40 goals. Yeah. And us finally winning a game at Wembley on penalty shootout, having missed the first three penalties. So the actual season for me actually finished on a high, but that was a disappointment for me just after Christmas when uh, Rochdale decided to let me go. Um... I want to go fast forward to yeah. Fleetwood, actually, because you joined them in 2018 under yeah. uh, Barton, who was a former player at City, so you had yeah. uh, a connection there. just want to ask you about how managers, because obviously you were a manager as well, how managers form their coaching team together? Because obviously you work with a lot of people. I know some managers then tend to, like, so for example, Mourinho, as much as he had like an experienced team, when he went to Tottenham, he brought someone from Portugal with him. They hadn't worked before worked with before but saw his talent and said I want him to come and join me so as a manager and then with you working with Burton how did you pick your coaching staff and then how did he tell you that he wanted you to be part of his coaching staff also 
Well, I picked my coaching staff quite slim. I only really had uh, the opportunity at Rochdale to bring in an assistant. Um, so I brought in Frankie Bunn, who coached me at City. Um, I've developed, I think, helped develop his son, Harry Bunn, by giving him lots of opportunities, uh, by giving him his league debut on loan at Rochdale, being his coach at City, getting him signed at Huddersfield, getting him fixed up at clubs elsewhere. He means a lot to me as a lad, as, as does the dad and the family. But I was only in a position to really bring in one member of staff at Rochdale. For Joey, it was different. I think he was a, a real coup for the club at the time. Um, they were dropping down the table uh, with Uwe Rosler, uh, who'd done a good job initially. Uh, they'd had previous managers, Graham Alexander, Stephen Presley, and a real fantastic football fan of a chairman, a young man with lots of energy, Andy Pilly, who backed his club by putting his hand in his own pocket, uh, possibly... Um, if there's a better training ground in League One, I haven't seen it. Uh, only a small fan base. They don't sell any merchandise and they haven't really sold any players in terms of a business model for what the chairman's invested in. He hasn't really got much back for his money. Um, but I think he's got other businesses all over the world. He's got two or three businesses actually at the training ground. It's that good and that big. And I think at that point of his career, it's just changed in the last month. Obviously, I'm sure everyone's aware that's watching because he's made a change by replacing and removing Joey. Um, but I think at that time he was more than willing to uh, try to get his football club better, get it moving, get it moving forward again, but just bring some energy around it, bring some attention to it. I think there was going to be a TV documentary that you know some guys followed us around for two years, but I'm not actually sure that will get aired. Um, and Joey to bring what he has brought to his football career, to give him his first opportunity as a coach and manager, it's, uh, it's been slightly... Um, tarnished by some unfair criticism of him, I think, in, in recent years. Some of the stuff he's brought on himself, which he, he owns up to always because he's, he's a real honest guy. But he's certainly his character, his personality and his career could be classed as colourful. Uh, and in the potential phase, I think Andy Pilly thought that was the right man at the right time for this club. He was a friend of the club, Joey, because um, he knew the chairman, he knew some players, he knew ex-players. He was a friend of the club. And Joey was just finishing his career. He was right at the crossroads of um, a ban for betting. And should he come back from the ban and show everybody what a good player he was, a different player, but he was one of the ones that got better as he got older, I believe, even though he got an England cap when he was younger. And he went up to Scotland to, to make a name for himself. He came back and was amazing for Burnley, um, getting them promoted, player of the year, I think, um, changing his game each season to, to survive in the game. Uh, with this obviously this infectious personality and this unbelievable hunger and football knowledge which he definitely has and I think Andy Pilly thought I'm going to give this guy a chance probably before his time but I think it, I'm willing to give him his time and, and that's, what, that's what happened in that moment we actually knew we were getting the job five, six months previously so we were able to build, talk, get ready, prepare not many, chance, not many times you can go into a job with four, five, six months preparation going into it but I just think he wanted to illuminate his football club with a, with a personality. But obviously, I can vouch for the fact that he's not just a personality. He's got an unbelievable work ethic, a great football knowledge. And he, although he wasn't a great coach when he started, I believe he was a great coach when he left. Um, I wanted to ask as well, because I know in football, the pressures are high as a manager, no matter the level. And last year, they finished fifth in the playoff position. Um, obviously, they didn't go up, so they stay in the division. Now, they are mid-table at the moment. 
I don't know if it's up for us to say whether he deserved more time in the job per se, because the club will obviously decide whether they feel like he's doing the job that they want him to do. But knowing him as a manager, how how long do you think it is before he gets back into management and then at a good level? Um, difficult, difficult to to suggest when or if that ever happens again. I believe he's got the the talent again, like players, still very much in the potential phase. You have to get up very early in the morning to outwork him. Um, you'd have to get up even earlier to outthink him. Um, but as we know, you know, I suggested before, opportunities are there in all walks of life and the best people take them. I don't know how many opportunities you get in life where an owner and his support cast of directors hand their football club over to you and say, you're the man to take our club forward. Now, he's had that at Fleetwood. I believe he did a, a, a really good job. Uh, I believe without the pandemic, pandemic, they'd have got automatic promotion last year, but they settled on playoffs on a points-per-game system and uh, slightly disappointed in the game against Wickham over two legs, uh, spirited in the second game, but kind of like lost it in the first. Um, so whilst I believe he's got the ability, the talent, the pedigree, the temperament, I believe, and the potential to be a top manager, actually in leagues above Fleetwood, which is the Championship, maybe even the Premier League, genuinely, but certainly the Championship. I believe he's got all the credentials to be a head coach at a club at that level. You just don't know or have faith in the owners at these football clubs, some of which are foreign, some of which don't care for what you've done in your career, some of which might look at some of the stuff he's done in his life and say, not for me. Uh, and say, we want you to be our man. If they just judged it alone on personality and football knowledge, you'd have a hell of a chance. Fair, fair. Um, you, yeah, go on, sorry, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. How do you feel about the, the cutthroat nature of, of football management now? I mean, Lampard obviously is the big the big name that uh, he obviously lost his job. Some say unfairly, some say quite fairly. Uh, you spent six months, seven months at, at Rochdale. Yeah. Um, What's your, what, what's your thoughts on how long managers are given? Well, time, time waits for no man. Uh, the game waits for no man. Um, and like I say, social media, there aren't. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a devil on the shoulder of, of, of a lot of, you know, hanging over managers really because there are only special types of people that go and watch a football match and then come home and go, I'm going to get on my phone or my laptop and I'm going to get on my social media account and I'm going to say how good everything was today. Not many people do that. <laughs> uh, I know you open the forum up with your podcast and you give equal opportunity to speak good and bad, right and left, you know, whatever. Um, but at the same time, um, there, aren't enough, there aren't enough nice people that use social media to, to deliver nice words. Normally, it's a hammering. Normally it's a moan. There are far too many grief junkies. There are far too many disappointment junkies. Uh, and sadly, um, you know, whether it be a Twitter account, I think these football fan forums that they have, you know, there are some people at the club that actually read this type of stuff and take notice of it. And there can be a swell. Um, you know, everybody, everyone who's a manager gets a little bit of tap. Um, and like... Uh, a guy, you know, someone gave me a bit of tap when I was was a manager, and a guy just settled me down immediately and says, "What you you reading that?" And I'm like, oh, "Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah." Well, have you not thought that that could be someone from another football team? That could be someone that's not been at the game. That could be someone that's got a gripe again. That's not that that they're not important, but unfortunately, 
it gathers and it can gather momentum uh, and, and it's just not ideal. However, you've got a choice to read it or not. Preferences to not read it. You've got to rise above it. And if you do well and win football matches, it doesn't matter what anybody types on a computer anyway. But at the same time, um, the way of the world now means that everybody wants something quickly. Everybody wants something yesterday. And I know that Joey's plans, he's a great example. He had plans for this, that, this and that moving the club forward, giving development opportunities, academy opportunities, you know, enhancing the training ground. You don't get that time. In truth, you're probably only always about four games from the sack and it's probably best to realise that once you go in the job. So, uh, not great. Um, Frank Lampard, for me, appears to have had a raw deal. Uh, in my opinion, that would be my choice. We crave these British managers, English managers. He's got a British coaching staff. He's developed from the academy. He's brought a young coach from a, a League One club from Wigan Athletic, completely English-based. We want all this. They get it. An ex-player, uh, uh, Jason Cundy, the other night, saying he believes he's the best player that Chelsea in the history they've ever had. And they've got a developing team. I don't believe he's signed all these players. There's big recruitment teams inside clubs now and it takes time to develop because at the same time they're trying to get Chelsea to develop and think that they've spent a load of money um, and they're underachieving but at the same time City are getting better, United are getting better, Leicester are getting better, Arsenal are getting better, Tottenham are getting better, Everton are getting better so you know for him to expect to get a team moving in five months uh, when players have come from all over Europe, a different style of play in different leagues I think he should have got more time than, than, than he actually got. So I'd always stick up for a manager that uh, gets the sack because I know how hard it is, I know how hard the job is, and I would always wish for more time, mostly. Do you think, though, that someone... Because I remember Jeremy Carragher recently said that, uh, obviously, when you are a player that's playing at the top level and the opportunity to manage a big club comes in front of you, it's going to be hard to you know I mean? Gary Neville... His first job was Valencia. That's a huge club in Spain. So he was never going to say no to that. Um, Gerard, he's doing fantastically at that moment. But when it was first offered to him as Rangers, that's a huge club in Scotland. Who's going to tell Rangers no as your first opportunity to manage a football team? Gerard, um, Lampard obviously went to Derby. And his next job was the club that he played for and became a legend at. So it's it's very difficult. Do you think, but do you think, that, um, do you think that the players should try and look to start at a lower division so they can really apply their trade and really get used to the the struggles of management before they find out because maybe someone like Paul Ince, even yeah. then, like that MK Dons, but then when he finally got his stuff up to the Premier League, it didn't work out too well at Blackburn. Do you think there's... No. What do you no. think? No, no, there's no guarantee. I remember, you know, Martin O'Neill was Grantham Town and like you say, Paul Ince, MK Dons, he was Macclesfield Town before that. Uh, got absolutely so much respect for him and those types of legends that want to get rolled around in the nettles uh, and struggle in, in leagues two and non-league, you know, to get the opportunity. It, it, it's great. But no, I think uh, Frank Lampard had earned the right to be manager of Chelsea um, and he'll be managing the Premier League again. Joey Barton had the opportunity to manage Fleetwood. Um, they, they've got extensive knowledge and they have extensive contacts and they're good people and they're good emblems for the club. Uh, and, and there are more, Ali Gunnar Solskjaer, you know, Mikhail Arteta. I don't have a problem with them. Uh, Gareth Southgate, you could argue, he was or, he was, he was was managing football matches without a qualification. He had to get fast-tracked into getting qualified, you know, Middlesbrough and, and England. And, no, I, I, I'm, all, I'm all for 
I'm all for um, footballing superstars. Maybe this is exaggerated credentials, but legends, uh, a word which is used quite a lot. I'm, I'm more than happy with them getting big jobs quickly, providing, providing those people then support themselves and surround themselves with the right people to make the machine, make the job work. Um, and then obviously go on to win football matches, what they'll all be judged on when all said and done. I've got not a problem at all that if someone's been in League 2 for 300 games and someone's not been a manager at all, and then the one who's not been a manager at all gets a championship job because he's had a better career, it's no, it's no problem to me. Okay. Um, last question I want to ask you as well is, now we spoke about earlier in this podcast, we spoke about Ben Mee, Talk yeah. about Rata and Kieran Trippier, who have gone on to be captains. Yeah. Uh, Trippier for England recently, obviously, Rata at Hover Berlin and um, then me at Burnley. Yeah. Um, but uh, you've been interviewed before where you said that you feel like we're not really producing much leaders anymore. And that's something that I've, I've been screaming for a while now because I look at some of the club captains or some, some teams and I feel like they're given the ability based on their, uh, and given the captaincy based on their ability rather than their leadership, rather sure. than looking at them and saying, this is a guy that can demand respect from the team. So someone like Henderson, for example, is actually a good um, example of someone who is not the biggest name in that Liverpool team. Yeah. But everyone in that squad respects him because yeah. he has that leadership about him. Whereas, for example, when I look at a phenomenal and a legendary player as Lionel Messi, I don't look at him and think he's a leader, nor do I look at Ronaldo and believe he's a true leader until the last recent years, but that's come with experience. Yeah. But anyway, to the question, what do you what do you think about the way we're developing players now? Do you feel like there's a way to develop leaders because those guys look like leaders from a young age? Yeah. As you said before, do you think they show that quality and then we have to help enhance it? Or do you think it's a coaching matter and why are we not getting the same leaders that we did yeah. in the previous decade? Yeah, I'm I'm quite passionate about this. Um now what I will apologise for straight away is there'll be some contradictions here from me because what I don't like and what I don't respect, I have in fact actually done myself and I've had to go through the process to go, I don't like that. Uh, I, I won't do you know, so so if I put this at the door of, you know, youth coaches I believe in the main, I've been that person and, and been through the process and not liked it. So it's from experience as well. Um I think the youth system at the section is flawed in terms of leaders. And I believe that every single football manager out of the 91 football league clubs, I believe at some point, some every day, some every week, some every Saturday, but I believe at some point during the season, the manager looks around his dressing room and says, there are no leaders in here. There are no winners in here. And they get back in the car and they ring you up and they go, you know what the problem is? There's not enough leaders. There's not enough anybody who care. I believe every single manager in the country believes that about modern day society in football. Now, where I would put that at is the, at the door of youth team coaches. Um, for instance, I've been lucky enough to start it early. I've already said I'm 48. So when I started at 19, you only have to hear the class of 92 how they talk about Eric Harrison, how they talk about Nobby Styles, how they talk about Brian Kidd. They were football fathers. They've got their own fathers, different backgrounds, different cultures, but they were football fathers. Jim Cassell, Alex Gibson and myself at Manchester City with Paul Power, Barry Poynton, we were football fathers. You got close to the players. 
not to the point of being the dad, but as close as you could possibly get. We disciplined them, we loved them, we supported them in, in, in all shapes and forms. Already mentioned Liam Brady at Arsenal. Everybody talks so well of Steve Highway at Liverpool, mm -hmm. Michael Owen, Steve McManaman, Robbie Fowler, Stephen Gerrard, the list is endless. Uh, and, and there are more, there are more. That's how it used to be. And it felt to me that there are uh, youth coaches in the day where you had to be good to get in because there'd be about five jobs. That was it. So, but five of you did everything. You did absolutely everything. Now you can be in a system now and there's 500 jobs and 500 people do not much. And what you find now is if you go on your coaching seminars or if you speak coach to coach, a question that often comes up is, is it about results or is it about development? Yeah. Is it about winning? Is yeah. it about development? If you run a coaching course now, that's a debate. True. Now, I don't understand why this gets split and differentiated. I don't understand it at all. Why on earth can it not possibly be about both? Because life is about winning. So if you find that there's a coach that says it's not about winning, you can guarantee that he probably doesn't win too much. <laughs> and he doesn't want to be judged by results. Now, at Manchester City, we were never bothered at all about being judged. And openly, we tried to win everything. And if you lost, you lose and you learn and you lose with humility and you move on to the next challenge. But you try and win it. Now, as a coach, I really want to put this out there. The game has changed and I've been part of this. So in the morning, the lads might be in for two hours. So they're in the gym in the morning for um, half an hour before training. Then they have 15 minutes warming up with the fitness coach, running in and out of poles, having a bit of fun, sometimes with the ball, sometimes without. So that's 45 minutes with the fitness coach. Then they go in these ridiculous 5v2 boxes that they call rondos, where it's a flick and fart about and you're constantly kicking it against somebody's shins because you're going for a nutmeg and somebody grabs the bib and I'm not going in. So you've got a 5v2 for 20 minutes and what that does, it builds little, little skills and it builds a little bit of fun and team spirit. Then you drift over. Right? So at no point have you won or lost in this moment. You've not been in the football training ground. You've been warmed up in the gym. You've warmed up with the fitness coach. You've had a rondo. You've not won or lost. Then you go and put your big square out and you play possession football. It might be 6v6, 7v7. And you just keep the ball off each other, keeping warm, having fun, keeping possession. The worst thing that happens is you give the ball away, but somebody on your team gets it back for you in five seconds. Now, unless you condition the game, maybe how many passes you get. Again, like I say, the worst tragedy that happens is you give the ball away, but your team gets it back quickly. So nobody's won or lost again. Then you go and do some tactical shape with your manager. If it's Joey Barton at Fleetwood, for instance, it's excellent and you're planning for the next game, but it's largely unopposed. And then you might do some crossing and finishing at the end for your strikers. Now, your team at the end are begging you, begging you to play an eight-a-side football match so that they can win at something, so they could score some goals. So there's not enough winning and losing going on. When we were younger, I'm older than you guys, but winning and losing was everything. You played with the Colts down. It was never a draw. You either won or you lost, and if it was a draw, you didn't go home. You played till it was next goal winner. The amount of times we played next goal winner. Yeah. You play five-a-side with your mates. I still go play five-a-side with my mates, my mates who didn't make it. We're passing people on, we're organising, we'll drop off, we'll go right, we'll go left, and we, want to, and we want to win. I don't believe a footballer wins or loses enough through the training week to then all of a sudden become a winner on a Saturday. You might just get an eight-a-side in training, which becomes competitive. But back to my point about coaches. 
there are a load of coaches who are hell-bent on their salary, some of which is funded, um, and the amount of people that say to me, and I go, what about this, what about that? And they go, oh, above my pay grade that, I just keep my head down. Now that phrase, I just keep my head down, should be banned out of the English football language, because you've got to rear up to commit, and either you'll teach somebody something or someone will teach you something. But anybody, if anybody said to me, I just keep my head down, I'd remove them. But there are a load of football coaches that say, um, it's not about results. So use any football you want. Let's say Harry Maguire, for instance. So he's had four relegations. He's lost up team semi-finalists, uh, semi-finals, uh, but he's captain and a, a, a leader. They say he's a leader at Manchester United. Now, I like him and respect him as a player, but I think it's unfair to call him a leader. But he's gone through the academy system. There are others, John Stones. Now, if you've got a player that's been in an academy system since he was eight, and he's gone through the junior section, then the 9 to 16 youth section, then the young professional, the under 21, 23, and he's been there 12 years before a debut, which can happen now. And your youth system has been saying, it's not about winning. It's not about winning. Unlucky, we're not bothered about results, try again next week. If you go home like that for 12 years, and then at 20, your manager gives you the first team shirt and says, it's your debut tomorrow, we want to win tomorrow. We need the three points. How are you expecting a sea change in attitude of a young player that's had 12 years in an academy system where winning isn't important to all of a sudden his league debut, he's now got to try and win the game. So it's an absolute joke and it's an absolute myth that people suggest that winning and results aren't important because what you should do mentality-wise is treat a nine-year-old like a first-team player and what is required. Now, there's ways you deal with disappointment. There's ways you deal with victory and defeat. So your highs aren't too high and your, lose aren't, your losses aren't too low. But you have to recognise what winning and losing is. And then when you go and hand them over to a, a first-team manager in the Premier League or other, this kid has been through the system. He knows the 4-4-2. He knows the 4-3-3. He's got set play responsibility. But he also knows what winning is. And he also knows what losing is. But if you've got a youth coach or a schoolboy coach that says winning is important, I'd get him out of the club because it is. I think that's fair. I mean, you could say that about a lot of things now. That It seems like in life, it's just make sure that the most important thing is participation. It's not about the win or the loss. Yeah. That's 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 more that's life, I'd say, about now. Um, is, are you positive that... That mindset will change at any no, point. No, it's getting it's getting worse. There are coaches that I know now that they you can't get close to the players anymore. Do you know what I mean? There was like like I say that football father relationship. I'm not saying it doesn't doesn't still exist in special cases, but um, you know, there's that many coaches now being being frightened of being marched off to HR for 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 what is seemed as bullying. Now that's not something that I would tolerate in any any shape or form in any in any year or era. Um, so that's one thing I would never support. But equally, there are some coaches now that just don't get close to players for the fear of just uh, you know being called a bully, being marched to H, marched off to HR and losing the job. They then go and put on a training session and then pick a team to play on the Saturday or Sunday morning and say it's not about winning. Don't worry. And all of a sudden, you're prolonging. You know, the exercise, making it harder for a first-team manager who then turns around to say, he's a lovely footballer, but he's got no desire. Um, we, we, we lost at weekend and he's not bothered. But if he hasn't been bothered for 12 years, you can't expect him to be bothered for 90 minutes on his debut because 
the mindset has been has been set in the in the huge learning phase of schoolboy and youth football, and I worry sometimes that we don't um, develop human beings correctly for you know what is a, a what is in front of them in adult life, i.e., a first team appearance, or actually even worse, which would be a release, you know, the the disappointment of which and. I think um, I, I hear these these buzzwords like snowflake and things like that. I'm not too sure I endorse anything like that either, but I would certainly would like to stand and challenge that uh, football as a coach is without doubt about development, without doubt about improving technique, uh, physicality. Um, you can do that these days. Players are very keen to do it. I think that's helped via social media. Uh, you know, long gone are the days where players wanted to be strong and fit because they wanted to to be uh, stronger than their opponent. A lot of these days, these players are getting fit for their Instagram by pictures and things like that. But either way, they, their bodies are getting bigger, better to look at, and stronger. But um, I just I just can't respect or have in any shape or form anybody that says results aren't important in football. Results are important in any walk of life, and you are not doing your future debutant and your first team manager any favours if you create this type of culture in your system I think personally I think that's probably the, the best way to, to leave this uh, this interview uh, coach you want to say anything yeah no um, that's interesting that's an interesting uh, insight and I am happy that you've gone into such detail about it because I am I am worried about that I mean I'm a, I'm a football coach and I've also even at, even at PE level you know, even at teaching at school sometimes as well, it's always about participation. I understand that because not everyone is there to be a sports person. Yeah. But you want them to have the idea that they, when when a kid wins something, they, they feel like they've achieved something. And if they don't win, I can talk to them and give them that sort of constructive criticism for them to reach that next level. Yeah. So if you're just being told about just participating, everyone does, end of the day. Of course. Yeah. But, but you know, if there's a running, if there's a running race... You start on a line, old-fashioned sports day, you used to wait for the gun. And you try and be the first that gets the chest through the ribbon at the other end. Mm -hmm. If you can, you work out, could you do a little bit better? Let's work towards maybe seeing if you were second, can you come first? If you were first, can you keep being first? If you were third, can you come second or first? And so on and so forth. Yes. Again, as a coach, I have been guilty. So I don't want to put this at every coach. I have been guilty of putting on training sessions where I've gone home after two days and thought, not one of these have won or lost today. They've not protected something. They've not gone for something. All they've done is have a bit of a feel of a football and have a bit of a run around. But what have they actually uh, got in front, held hold of um, and kept hold of uh, and maintained and as a result won something? And if, it, you know, if, if football wasn't about, uh, about winning, why do we have scorelines? That, that's facts. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's facts. So... Uh, I'd say we'll leave it there for today. We want to thank you very much for for joining us, uh, Steve. It's been a it's been a pleasure. It's been very insightful. So we thank you for that, lads. Thank you for having me. It's been great, great to meet, great to link up with you. Thank you for thank you for joining us and um, shout out also to Star National uh, Shoot the Defense, where you can also catch Steve um, on that podcast. Great podcast, great insight. So shout out to Star, Steve, and everyone else that appears on that podcast. Um, but yeah. It's been great having you on, so we'd love to have you on again some other time. My pleasure, lads. Okay, stay safe, lads. You too, sir. Bye-bye. Okay, and uh, that's that, I guess.
How's that? Okay, mate. Well, All good. Yeah. That wasn't too good. strong, was it? No, no, we're still alive. So, we're still alive, so I'll, I'll we'll chat to you in a minute. Cool. There you go. Okay. There you go. Awesome. That was a great show. It was. Where can they find us, coach? Uh, you can find us on. Uh, I'm, I'm happy right now. You can find <laughs> us on. You can find us on Twitter at Free Midfield. You can find us on YouTube, Free Midfield Podcast, and Free Midfield on uh, Apple Podcast on Spotify and of course uh SoundCloud. Yeah, that's that's us. Like, comment, subscribe. And again, thanks Steve for coming on. Excellent.